Welcome to the Pastel Podcast. In this one, we're going to be covering 1984's not classic, Children of the Corn. Um, That's pretty bad. It's, it's not good. Let's Spoiler alert, you can just stop listening now. No, please don't. But, um, the, yeah, okay, anyway. So, Children of the Corn, in case you haven't seen it, which, keep it that way. Um... This is the story about a couple that is driving through Kansas. I guess it's Kansas. Uh, I think probably the right. Maybe Nebraska. There's, a lot, Nebraska. there's a lot it of corn. There's What's a lot of corn. Really? It doesn't really matter. It's, it's the same state. Um, anyway, they're driving through, you know, they get to a small town and it's slightly more complicated in the movie than it is in the book, but essentially it's just they're driving out there and they wind up in a small town. There's not really any adults around. There's just a bunch of psycho little evil children um, in a deep zealot revival um, as that happens. And uh, and they've killed no kids and they've, super into Jesus. and they've killed all the adults and they're trying to kill them. Uh, and that's pretty much the plot there. Um, and well, no. And there's like he who walks behind the rose evil thing happening in the corn uh, who's like they worship that's pretty much yeah which if you if you've read the story and you read a lot of Stephen King you might know who that is or how it connects to other things but for the sake of this it's just this evil thing in the corn and that's pretty much so if you haven't seen the movie that's uh we've summed it up better than the movie did <laughs> that's a great summary um so anyway uh, I guess let's get started here um well, one thing I'll have to say is that I didn't I guess I didn't realize how bad this movie was going to be for one. I thought I was going to be dealing with like not quite Cujo level, but like okay, this is okay. Whoa. No. And we'll get into that, but no, it's it's not good. And then that ties in with some of the development stuff, which is that I didn't realize how much Stephen King hated this film pretty much equally with The Shining. Although actually, you know what? Like the quotes that he has here are worse than he ever says about The Shining. Because I remember, like, he's like, it's a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine. Yeah, we're not getting anything anywhere near that nice um, uh, on on this one. So, uh, and yeah, and there's, there's a couple quotes. One just says, I like most of the adaptations pretty well. The only two real exceptions to that are The Shining and Children of the Corn. There's another quote, but I'll save that for a little bit later. Um, but anyway, so like in the 70s, he had written a script um, of the film, I guess, but just sort of as like practice. Like it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't hired to do it or anything like that. Um, and so it there was that kind of laying around, I guess. And then there was this main based company called Varied Directions that approaches him about making a really low-budget project. Now, they're based in Maine, and he's, at that point, he's wanted um, a production in Maine um, locally to kind of, like, boost the economy because, you know, he's a he's a Maine man um, pretty much his whole life. And so, yeah, so he wants to have a, a local production to help boost the economy, so he sells them the rights I mean, fairly cheaply, probably, because they didn't have a lot of money. Harry Wyland and David Hoffman, that's the two. So they spent about a year um, trying to develop it, and they they don't get a deal. Um, so Hoffman moves on, but Wyland lines up with 20th Century Fox and HBO, um, which I don't... I mean, I guess that would have been theatrical, but interesting combination. But Fox dropped out at the last minute, which temporarily killed the project. Um, and then you get Hal Road Studios, great name, uh, who have a guy named George Goldsmith who rewrites King's script. So technically, he still might be getting credit at this point. Um, but... I'm guessing George took a lot of liberties with this script. Um, 
And anyway, so he gets his uh, draft gets noticed by a New World Pictures executive, which Roger Corman had sold the the uh, production company at this point. So he didn't have anything to do with it. Thank God. Um and uh, any, anyway, and so he gets noticed uh, by this executive, and it pretty much gets put in puts in production very soon after, which was about August of '83. Um, and then they wanted to film it obviously during the harvest season, so they had to film it quickly, like less than a month. It was like 27 days or something. And uh, and yeah, so I mean, because it had been based on his original scripts. He still has credit at this point on the film, and he's not sure at this point if he wants any credit, because at this point, he did Creep Show, but he hasn't been credited for anything else, I don't think. So, I mean, I'm guessing part of it wants the credit, um, but then at some point he starts to get the feeling that the film is not very good. And it's a funny it, anecdote about that too, is that like, apparently when the film was initially released, uh, like we talked about, it was like one of the first thing to say Stephen King's this, but then under the writing credit, he was listed as Stephen King with a V. That's, the that's, original release. that's no good. Yeah. That's, yeah. and that's, uh, yeah. So that's the thing is that he, uh, he wants, he, well, he's not really sure, but then George, in his infinite wisdom, um, the petitions to get full credit for the film. You could have blamed it on Steven. Um, but it, it, but anyway, he wants to get full credit. Um, so King just says, okay, fine, you can have it. And he also says that they sent him a final shooting draft, but he, he was saying that he felt like they were trying to trick him. And I don't know if that means that he means that, like, they were sending him a draft that wasn't actually the final draft uh, or or what. But he felt like they were trying to trick him into keeping his name on the project, which I wouldn't be surprised because, it, like we said, it's probably the first film to say Stephen King's this or that, which usually later that means that it's a TV project that he's written. But at this point, but sometimes he'll just throw it out there um, to make it sound, you know, like, please watch it. Um, and so that kind of felt like they really leaned into the Stephen King um, on this one. And so, uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting, sort of a completely opposite with his other experiences as a screenwriter. Well, at least when it came to the credit, obviously they rewrote it heavily. But, but yeah, okay, so the quote that I want to... And honestly, I don't have a whole lot else, but I... I So I had to share this quote, which was that... Um, he did this USA Today interview in 1985, and he used this analogy of sending a daughter off to college, you know, of, of his books becoming movies or, you know, whatever. Um, and he says, you hope she'll do well. You hope she won't fall in love with the wrong people. No, she, you hope. OK, sorry. You hope she'll do well. You hope she won't fall in with the wrong people. You hope she won't be raped at a fraternity party, which is pretty well what happened with Children of the Corn. Jesus. <laughs> like, see, this is what I'm saying. Like, you don't get anything like that with The Shining. Um, and, al and also in his Castle Rock newsletter, which was so cool that he was doing that. Um, he was writing a newsletter, like, I don't know, monthly for a while that you could subscribe to. Um, anyway, he lists it as his number six worst movie of all time in the same year. So I, I'm guessing, you know, it might not be that high anymore, but just based on how many bad. But uh, at least at the time, he really did not like this movie. Um and I just, I guess I missed that. I, I and everyone talks about The Shining, how much he hates The Shining, but like, really, probably Children of the Corn more because he's not saying anything's good. Where at least with The Shining, he's saying like, what the cinematography's great, and blah 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 blah. You know, it looks good, um, but it's flat. You know, like this is just like, ooh, ooh. so. Yeah, the rape, the rape quote. I was like, whoa. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. Uh, yeah, the only thing I had to add to production is, like I always do, try to find something humorous, and then we'll get into uh, the actual movie. Uh, but uh, the cinematographer on this film, one of his earliest uh, real movies, 
used the pseudonym Raul Lomas. The reason why I say real movies is he used that pseudonym because he was already pretty famous under his real name, uh, Jao Fernandez, uh, as a kingpin of what they refer to as the golden age of porn. He made a lot of really prolific 70s porn movies, so uh, it's humorous that they uh, felt that he needed to change, like use a pseudonym to do this, but also very understandable, but it makes it even more funny that it was all for naught because he's still listed as Jao Fernandez on the IMDb page. Jesus. Fun facts. So. So, uh, I guess the movie... Um, one of the first things I noted uh, that I talked to you about before this was that one of the production companies involved was uh, Gatlin Productions. So that was kind of funny because that Gatlin's the name of the city. While you were doing your intro, I did some research uh, and can find literally nothing about it. And the only movie they have any production credits on is this movie. So God only knows. So my first note on the movie, which I'm sure is probably pretty close to your first note as well, is that the little kid narrator voice is just awful. Awful. So bad. Uh, and I'm just like, what? And, and and actually, I was watching with... Uh, Sarah was kind of watching. Ava was... Ava, my uh, daughter of the podcast, was watching... Because she she was like, oh, I wanted to watch this movie. Because I said, oh, I, I'm going to watch Children in the Corner or whatever. And she's like, oh, I wanted to watch this. I'm like... Yeah. And uh, I think, but I they just came out with a new one because it never died. Yeah, it just and came I out in think, 2023. Actually, I think it was, yeah, I think it was this year. And I think, she, I think that's what she wanted to watch. But, uh, but she was still, she was still open to this one. So um, anyway, so she watched it and I told her, I'm like, yeah, the, the voiceover, I heard the voiceover and then the fact that they were showing everything that happened. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I don't think there's any coming back from this. I'm like, this is such a terrible, this is such a terrible storytelling decision that I'm just like, they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm like, there's just, I know I don't, I mean, no, there's no way, you know, you just ruin the whole, like, like I was saying before, it's like, it just feels like, because a lot of those early Stephen King stories, and this is a very early story. The movie came out, you know, 84, but the story was written probably I don't know, seven, I don't even know, 75, 70, pretty early. Um, so, you know, a lot of those very early Stephen King stories, you know, feel very like uh, Twilight Zone-ish or, um, but anyway, a lot of them feel very like, yeah, kind of Twilight Zone-ish. And, and so this one kind of feels like that. Um, but, uh, but, but obviously like, so, I mean, obviously then you would have kind of them rolling into town and, and like, there's no adults anywhere. It's mostly deserted, but, um, but the buildings aren't like that old. So it's not, you know, so it, it, it would be really interesting to keep it like that. Like it is in the, is in the story and a little the fun time thing just because it relates back to uh past episodes of the podcast as well i had to look it up to make absolutely certain uh children of the corn was first published in the march 1977 issue of penthouse magazine which is if you are a long-time listener the uh issue of penthouse that was on my amazon wish list that caused my mom to ask me why i wanted her to buy me porn for christmas <laughs> that's right yeah call back to previous episode uh also richard matheson that was the name that i was escaped so anyway you know very uh so yeah it feels like a very could be i mean this could be a twilight zone episode if you did it a certain way and 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 just why would you show exactly what happened and have like a seven-year-old narrator be like, man, you don't just like look. It sounds like he's introducing like just like a kid movie or something. I mean, well, I feel the same way that like the first ten minutes of the movie. I think the first ten minutes of the movie ruins the movie, but also showcases the one thing that the movie does well. Uh, it ruins the movie because like I, I same as like the like you know five years earlier sort of thing. Uh, I. It, it, it just seems such a weird storytelling or like movie thing to take away any of the intrigue of the whole rest of the movie by explaining what happened before 
anything else that's important. But also it did highlight the only thing that they managed to do well in this movie, and that was casting, because I don't know where they went in America or how they put out the casting call for literally just creepy-ass-looking kids wanted. But they found them. They found them. Which also led me to what I think is one of the most appalling things to me, just because it's shocking. But John Frederick, who is the actor who played Isaac... John Josh John Franklin, excuse me, who's the actor who played Isaac at the time of the movie is supposed to be playing like barely a teenager, is 24 years old. That dude does not look, t- and that's a normal thing that wouldn't normally shock me if the dude didn't look like 12, 13. Wow. Yeah. yeah. 24 years old. And creepy, but it sounds like. Uh, a munchkin and kind of yes. like one too. Uh, and uh, so yeah, after, after that, my next note was just like after that 10 minutes and the kind of ruining is that they then spent, this is the first one in a while that did this probably since Cujo, at least Cujo felt that way to me where there was just a long drawn out credit scene at the beginning and it was just filled with little kid crayon drawings. I felt like the, the violent crayon drawings, I was like, I was okay with, I was like, you know, I was like, you know, this is kind of interesting. Uh, the very, yeah, the very first note I had, which was kind of like we talked about the intro, was just the fact that it says Stephen King's Children of the Corn. And I had a feeling, I'm like, this probably doesn't have much to do with Stephen King. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the right feeling. Um, but yeah, and then, yeah, the voiceover thing was just like, what the, although there's uh, Isaac outside the diner, like peering in the window and I'm like Jesus he would just like and he doesn't even walk into frame he just kind of slides in staring in the window like he just just drifts in from the side it's just like they're just sort of hamming it up already um Which, yeah, I mean, it's creepy looking. So, I mean, yeah, there is right. They're definitely fucking creepy looking. Yeah, they went out of their way to find the creepiest looking kids they could find. So, like, kudos there. I mean, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, violent crayon drawings. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, okay. The very, very yeah. intro. That's kind of what, Yeah. after that, it goes to uh, Linda Hamilton and uh, Peter Horton. Yeah. In the hotel room. Uh, my first note in the hotel room is... It's already kind of a weird scene with not much information as to who they are right off the bat. But I think the most important thing they could have removed from that beginning sequence was Linda Hamilton singing. Yeah, singing, dancing. Yeah, that was that was the next note that I had. It was uh, not so good. It was, yeah. <laughs> that was, it made me think of, that, that was the, the biggest dancing uh, related note since uh, uh creep show. show since creep yeah. show yeah so with was it was that ed o'neill ed harris ed harris yes i always screw up the ed o'neill thing it's definitely not ed o'neill <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah so felt kind of on par with that um yeah so that was that was interesting uh okay yeah and i guess mine skips to like after they hit the kid with the car. So I don't really have anything between. I'm right before that, like, there's not much explanation. Like, And I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm going to talk about it in the uh, uh, pop culture part. But while completely changing a whole ton of the information, the South Park uh, parody episode of Children of the Corn kind of does a better job of telling the story. But... Uh, so they're in the car, they're driving through Nebraska, uh, which already seems like a weird route, because the, depending on where they're coming from, because it doesn't tell you, but they're on their way to Seattle, because Peter Horton's character, Bert, has a doctoring job to get to. Uh, but the first thing, like, because they're obviously trying to play up the, like, religious aspect, even before you know there's much of a religious aspect, but as they're driving through Nebraska, they try to turn on the radio for some tunes, uh, and, uh, it's just some preacher screaming about how there's no room for fornicators. Uh, so that was like the first thing that out, out of that that popped into my head. And then it's like almost right after that that they hit the kid in the middle of the street. Yeah, yeah. which that I, I had one note before that. So. Which that part. Um, and, and and I think when they're they're making comments like they're they're you know using the preacher's voice and being like there's no room for homosexuals. Which I think that's actually from. I mean that's actually like the very beginning of the story which is like exact i know you're trying to pad it out but like that's exactly where the story should have started was just them in the car and yeah that's the thing and they have the the um 
yeah, the creepy zealot pastors, uh, you know, preachers, and, and and yeah, so you're kind of getting some foreshadowing that something's going on, and that's exactly where you should have started the movie too. But what are you going to do? Um, but yeah, so okay, so they hit the kid with the car, which in the story, I don't know if they really emphasize this enough. I mean, obviously he's. I don't remember what the preceding scene is exactly, but he's being like executed. Essentially, he's like it, he's they done. Play out that essentially he's Job and Sarah's brother, I think. Uh, and uh, he, the three of them, are the only ones who don't like Isaac and everything he's doing. So he's trying to go to get help so that he can get Job and Sarah out. But he's caught by Isaac and quote unquote he who hides behind the rose. Uh, and so they execute him and then apparently put him in the middle of the street because that's what kids do with people after they execute them. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, because I mean, in the story, they they hit the kid with the car and then they see that his throat is slit. And I don't know if they really show. That. I don't. Well, I don't know if they. I don't believe they really. Well, they they acknowledge that it's a murder, but I don't know that they really show, or I don't remember that they really showed. There's too much other crap going on to notice whether or not they showed whether or not the guy got killed. The, his throat was slit. But I feel like that was a little. That was more. That would have been a more powerful image just to see like the throat just you know sure. like but anyway um hits the kid with the car and then he starts acting really weird which he says he hits the kid with the car and i guess he notices that the kids you know that somehow the the kid was already hurt or killed well i mean obviously he wasn't killed exactly but he was almost there and and then so he says something is very wrong and so like okay but then he's like he doesn't tell her what he's going to do He's like, I like, I can't tell you what, like, what is going on here? I'm like, he. It seems like he's very overdramatic of like, something's very wrong, and then like he's being secretive, and then like I, I don't know. It just felt really weird all of a sudden. I mean, obviously there is something weird happening, but he doesn't really. I don't know. The whole rest of the movie uh, from then on, like Peter Horton's whole energy seems to switch, uh, causing him to probably say some of the most absurd lines in the entire movie yeah yeah he really is very frantic the rest of the movie after that yeah no i noted that as well that like he tells her to stay in the car but that, like like what are you gonna go do where are you going you don't even know where you are you're in the middle of fucking nowhere um yeah stay in the car i'm gonna go do something but he doesn't know what and then so after all that and like she gets sucked into her dream, which is not explained at all, but is a connection through the book to later works as well. And then they just start driving again, which is when we patch over to uh, Job and Sarah again, which I had to note this one just because I thought it was ridiculous. Uh, Job's just blatantly cheating while they're playing Monopoly. And then, and then the dialogue here is between them is just awful. Who this George Goldsmith character uh, needs to figure out how people actually talk to each other? Because as they're playing the game too, like he's trying to skip over her spot on like Park Place or some shit. And then she's just he's like, oh fine, how much do I owe you? And she says thirteen thousand hundred. To which he just exclaims back to her thirteen thousand hundred, and I'm like, this is absurd. <laughs> It's uh, rough. Yeah. Uh, but she's got like, well, no, I don't know if it's her. Is it her? You know, but like she has the the drawing of like her of like them coming. Mm-hmm. Which yes. I'm like, I don't remember. Yes, that's I'm why. Like, that's why Job ends up getting in trouble, but not Sarah because Sarah has the get later on. Isaac says Garrett and Sarah has the gift of sight. She foretold that the Outlanders were coming. The uh, he doesn't use Outlander at the time. I think he says interlopers were coming. Oh yeah, yeah interlopers. Yeah. yeah, which I don't know if it's any better than Elf. Yeah, yeah. But... Isaac like in- interlopers. It's uh, Malachi who's obsessed with the Outlander. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the fact that you remember that, I, I find. um yeah uh they have a little corn cross i took a note about that apparently yeah yeah, they found the cross made out of corn in the kid's suitcase and which you know it's okay i 100 believe that the number has got yeah yeah, i mean that part i feel like is okay you're gonna be like what the fuck is up with this they worship corn that feels that feels pretty on brand yeah (laughs) feels easy to believe i mean their college team is literally the corn huskers right exactly so this doesn't feel like a great it's not a stretch yeah (laughs) um 
Yeah. And then, okay, I guess I'll mention this because why not? I don't have a lot to say. Um, Hemingford, 19 miles to Hemingford because they got that old man mechanic guy. Yeah, which I've I got a little bit about the mechanic. So one, like first adult that's not dead that you see, and they explain that later, kind of. You see him, like, handing over a wrench, and he's like, I need a different size. And, of course, you assume that a kid's going to come up, and then, like, a, the dog brings over the tools. So he's trained his dog to get tools, and somehow the dog can also read the, uh, you know, the difficult metric system. So kudos to you, dog. Uh, and then when they roll up, like, uh, the, before they even ask for anything, he's like, I ain't got no gas. I ain't got no oil. I ain't got no car parts. And he's like, dude, I'm just looking for a phone. Oh, I ain't got one of them either. So, yes, then the Hemingford reference, again, another connection to what would eventually be uh, in other Stephen King works that we'll talk about when we get there. Uh, but as they're driving around, this is the start of Peter Horton's descent into fucking madness is like as they're driving around the signs, you know, after you see the Hemingford 19 and they go towards Hemingford and they get a little ways down the way and there's no more Hemingford signs, but there's a sign that says Gatlin three miles. And, and he just, uh, yeah. And he's all driving around and he says, Gatlin, they, do they have a monopoly on road signs for a place that doesn't want any video visitors? They sure advertise a lot. Yeah. Which I feel like was appropriate. Cause yeah, there's like 15 Gatlin signs. So. Yeah. Different Gatlin signs so then I always have to call these out when it happens it's the first one uh, Salem's Lot unless of course you count Cujo but they kill the dog which you know I'm never a fan of uh, but the, the 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 super smart the super smart tool finding dog you're gonna kill off that dog I know I'm like I'm pretty sure they're gonna kill the dog but I wasn't sure and then my daughter cried for like five minutes so yeah yeah, yeah. I was you don't kill it's not okay. Sarge. Get your shit together, Fritz. We had, yeah. We had to pause the movie and we played taps for, for Sarge. So, you know. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, which then led to, like, and in a movie with just absurd lines all through it, it led to what I thought was the most, just because, like, man, Seattle should rescind this man's offer for the doctor and job because he does not understand the Hippocratic Oath because after they end up at that same junction that says Gatlin this way for Hemingford this way 19, he starts ranting about the mechanic guy and how we shouldn't have listened to him. He threw us for a loop. He was telling us to go the wrong way. And then he yells, don't ever show up in my emergency room, buddy. Right, right. I know. Yeah. Also, the fact that they just add Seattle in there is just kind of weird. I, like, it's just totally, you don't, you don't, I don't know. You just don't need to know where they're going and why Seattle. But who knows? But yeah, I know. I, that, that is, you're not going to be a good doctor. Um, oh, yeah. But in the garage, though, they, like, he's about to get it. I can't remember how they're going to, but they just cut away. And, like, I was expecting to see a little bit of gore, but they just, Totally cut away and they don't yeah. see anything, which was yeah. interesting. I thought because yeah. isn't this this is, this is R rated? Yeah, because they didn't even have that many PG thirteen movies. Speaking of which, I don't know where what platform you watched this on. Uh, that was fine. okay. I, well, you probably didn't notice this, but it was really funny and it's telling of the time. Uh, you know the MPAA and their wild antics. But at the top, it says rated R for violence and smoking. <laughs> That's really. Yeah. See, like, I feel like I would expect that now, but not then. Because, like, everybody's. No, I would definitely expect it then, especially with, like, some of the Ronald Reagan shit at the time. So, like, like oh, you cannot depict smoking. Because remember, this was, like, the original time that they first cracked down on, like, camel joe being too cartoony and then in the 90s when sanction like that went went came off camel joe became a literal fucking cartoon so i guess yeah i guess so i guess i was just thinking like that came more in the 90s i was thinking but yeah i guess you sure. see that in the 80s but yeah. uh yeah, yeah but no. for violence and smoking uh, let's see. Yeah, I, th I just thought Hold Back in the Gore, but this was kind of weird just because it was R, but I, I don't know. And and they're totally leaning into the Stephen King thing. So we talked about this with Christine, where, like, they're sort of adding shit because to get an R because, yeah. you know, because it's Stephen King and, and John Carpenter. But it so it felt kind of just weird that they're not leaning into the, the gore. I, I don't know. I'd agree. Just, like, there are a lot of opportunities uh, for death scenes in this that could have been far more brutal than they were. And I would imagine in the, like, 
17 sequels and remakes of the movie there's probably at least one of them that's a lot more gory yeah yeah Yeah. although what was weird is i didn't and i'm pretty sure this is correct but i yeah because i knew you know as as elder millennials you know as kids there was already like a billion of these movies and you know but not until nine years after the original film they even make the second one which i was like you can double check but i'm pretty sure that's what i found and i'm like really it took that long um i mean maybe i'm wrong but i feel like that's what it said the second movie was made and so i guess they just if that's correct then they just pump out a shitload in the next in the the rest of the 90s basically because i feel like by the time like twelve thirteen, that I swear to God, there was at least like seven uh, of these things. Two was in ninety two, three was in ninety five, four was sometime in between. That four was in ninety six and has Naomi Watts in it, which is crazy. Five was in uh, ninety eight. Yeah, so they cranked a new one out almost every two years in the 90s. Yeah, so, so yeah, because, like, not, yeah, the second one doesn't come till 92, the third one doesn't come till 95, so it just feels like that's pretty slow, but then it looks like it's seven, eight, nine. Why? Because I feel like none of them, even the original, it was, it was not, it didn't lose money, but that's only because it was made for $3 million, because it made 14. And a half. Yeah, I got fourteen point five. But yeah, less than fifteen million dollars worldwide. I'm pretty sure that was. Uh, So yeah, okay, you didn't lose money, but like, cheap. Well, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't count. You know how much advertising they spent, which I don't know. Um, But yeah, so it didn't. I can't imagine a lot. I also saw that it didn't make a lot of money because it was put up against like some pretty big movies the weekend it came out. So they. Yeah. It's also like it. Like some of the other earlier movies before that one, they didn't capitalize on the release. Like it, a lot of the earlier movies were, as we've talked about, were went into production before the book even came out. So they're they're the book release and the movie release really tried together. And this was almost ten years after a very limited release that didn't reach a whole lot of people because it first came out in a porn man. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. No one was had children the corn. You know, it wasn't in the cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially because its second release i believe was in night shift uh which is a collection that arguably has better stories in it than children of the Corn. see yeah it's not like see i, I don't i don't mind it because it's just kind of like this weird little like i mean i already said it but weird little kind of twilight zone vibe so it's kind of entertaining but making a film out of it like like i said corn corn's not really scary so i don't know kind of a weird one to to go with but i guess they had the rights to it, and it was Stephen King stuff. It was Stephen King, big era, and the, why not? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, for the film now, I kind of jumped to uh, Burton, Vicky, Linda Hamilton, and Peter Horton stumble upon Sarah in the house when they've made the decision that they're, you know, screw what the mechanic says, they're going to Gatlin. And uh, they're just asking her all these questions. I really don't have a whole lot of notes from here because this movie was just, you kind of get sucked into the awe of how bad it is. Uh, so really, I just kind of wrote when something stood out to me, like uh, Peter Horton and Vicky. Vicky's trying to be like really sympathetic to this child and stuff. And Peter Horton is still in his rapid descent into madness. Uh, and so Vicky is asking Sarah all these questions. And she's like, what happened to all of the... Uh, what happened to all of the adults? They're in the cornfield. And then the assumption is, oh, they must be working. What are they doing out there? Isaac put them there. Uh, so then you get this little runaround and Peter Horton goes ape shit and is just like, we're not staying here. I'm going somewhere else. I'm leaving you here alone because this little girl is just messing with us. And... Yeah. And... Uh... <sighs> Yeah, I, I know. I actually, I I guess I wrote a note here that just says bored. I'm just very bored. Yeah, no, it's very fair. <laughs> like, because from there, from there, too, you're already, like, weirdly enough, you're already more than halfway through the movie at this point. So there's not a whole lot left because, as you talked about, the filler is weird shit that they just put at the beginning of the movie that didn't need to be there. I know so much. Even the diner scene is like, it could have been quicker, like, they... Well, that too, and like as the, the 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 scene where they're driving through Nebraska is easily ten to fifteen minutes before they hit the kid. I mean, yeah, it's weird. Like, yeah, for an hour and thirty-three minute movie to have spent what is probably twenty-five minutes on just the crap before the story even gets started. 
It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was like, how can we make this 90 minutes? And there was probably better ways to do that. Um, So at some point, I don't even know the the, the reference for this, but there's an axe through the door at some point, and I'm like, is this a Shining reference? I don't know. It just felt very, like, exactly, like... The axe goes like straight through almost the same exact way. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but it felt it was it was something I'm like, maybe this is a thing. I don't At know. At that point, probably. Like, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I had specifically, which I think is in the same area, it's I just think it's a different kid, is Malachi and his sickle. Because Malachi is walking around when he when they get in the house, and this is when they grab Vicky. Is he's the whole time, the whole rest of the movie? I think he's just carrying around this sickle. Yeah, and uh, so that's how you harvest corn. And I guess let's just get to it. Which is at this point in the film, the biggest thing that stands out is just fucking Malachi and big fucking teeth, just saying, Outlander, Outlander. We have your woman. Yeah. I'd say that the two biggest things that stick out is Malachi, his flowing red hair, his gigantic teeth, screaming Outlander, and Isaac, this shrill little gnome, fucking speaking in King James for the rest of the fucking movie. Those are the things that stick out. Because, like, not only is the Isaac character just ridiculous to begin with, but the dialogue is specifically written to where he speaks in prose. It's like reading an old school Bible. He's literally speaking scripture word for word. And it's it yeah the, the, that was the note that I wrote here. God, this dialogue is awful because Malachi and Isaac are just arguing, and Malachi's big buck teeth are getting in the way of everything that he says. And all the while, uh, Isaac is screaming at him in a King James accent. <laughs> and you imagine if you saw this on the big screen, how big are those teeth? Oh, oh yeah. yeah! Imagine if they made this movie in 3D. <laughs> it's like it's right there. Oh Jesus! They're coming out the screen at me. <laughs> yeah, that's like the biggest. I mean, so many times. I didn't count, but it's so many times. And well, because at this point he's getting chased. At some point soon after this, I think they're chasing him through the town, which I feel like lasts for half an hour. Um, maybe it's not that long, but it feels like they chase him like a long time. And he's a pretty quick runner. I got to say. I mean, he was really. You know, getting around there. Um, And so I don't know. At this point, also, you know, talking about how frantic he is, this is kind of towards the end. And I don't necessarily think the line is, like, terrible. I mean, it's actually probably one of the better lines. But he delivers it so, you know, because he's, like, in the middle of a fight. And then he's like, any religion without love or compassion, it's false. And I'm like, it's not that bad of a line, but he delivers it so crazily in the middle of this like fight and i'm like i'm like this is not it's probably one of the better lines but he's yeah he's literally at this point he has picked up uh i believe he's picked up malachi's sickle and he's waving it around while uh vicky sarah and job run off uh which was i shit you not the hardest name for me to figure out that his name was job i had to look it up on imdb because they keep calling him joby oh yeah uh uh-huh So for a while, I thought it was maybe he was maybe the Joseph character and they were saying Joey. But then as it went on, I'm like, they're not saying Joby. They said Joey. There's something else in there. What the fuck is Joby? Because they're trying to get away. And yeah, he screams that at the kids. And then one of the kids stabs him in the chest with a stake. (laughs) Which, I mean, if if you're getting like the religious names, I mean, Job is not not the one to gun for. Uh, But I'm, I'm assuming they like renamed themselves. I don't know. I would guess so, too, like that Isaac. But also, like, it's never explained. But everyone, all of the kids have very biblical names. Sarah, Job, uh, uh, Joseph, I believe, was their brother, who is the one who gets killed and is the dead kid in the middle of the street. And then Malachi and Isaac. So all of the kids names are very religious. Job, Job and Malachi are the ones that I'm like, "Eh." it wasn't for those two. It's like Isaac, Sarah. I mean, it could go either way, but. Yeah, it's just yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm assuming it's just a very like zealot revival thing, which does not feel unrealistic. Um, but I mean, all being like twelve year olds, you know, maybe. Uh, but yeah, and well, and that's what it's, I mean. Really, like, if like the the serious point is just like he's in this literal like physical manifestation of 
a fight against zealotry, which is 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 really interesting how it gets kind of like there's that line, you know, a, at least. And, and but that's it, too. Like literal physical fight against zealotry. They have one line of like, oh, this is the only way religion is good. And then it's never brought up again. And then and then instead and then instead, fine, you don't want to accept good religion. I'll murder your God. Because that's what happens in the rest of the movie. That's basically the rest of my notes was because here's where they explain that when they're nine is as soon as once they age past eighteen, they get sacrificed to he who walks behind the roads. So my literal line there was no survival past nineteen, bummer. And then from there, it's just the way that the movie ends. Uh, one like. Linda Hamilton and Peter Horton, when they're trying to set up, like, they make the decision that they have to light the corn on fire and basically kill he who walks behind the rose by burning it down, um, which just turns into the worst sequence, I, like, like in a movie, because they're sitting there trying to get the gas to come out, and he's like, oh, I need a rag, so she rips, so Linda Hamilton rips Job's shirt off. And then they're sitting right next to each other, literally right next to each other. And instead of handing it to him, she throws it at him. And then he gets everything set up. They set up the sprinkler system to to sprinkle gas all over the corn. And then uh, Peter Horton gets this uh, Molotov cocktail set up, does a really shitty throw. So then Job runs out into the middle of the corn while uh, he who walks behind the rows, the turtle, as they call it, which was an upside down wheelbarrow that they were dragging underneath the dirt to create that effect. Uh, and then runs back, gives it back to him and says, throw it right this time, which then, yeah, throw it right this time, which then proceeds to be probably the worst special effects scene I've ever seen in the movie. As soon as everything starts to catch on fire, they it, it, right before everything catches on fire, you see this cloud cover rolling in that's got this kind of like look of faces going through it. And that's supposed to be like the first physical embodiment of he who walks behind the rose. And then when they throw it, when he throws it right this time. Uh, it turns into this blaze, this gigantic mushroom cra- cloud, which has the face dying in it, and it just turns into this really shitty animation to be used as the special effects, and it's just god awful. Which then, you know, of course they've 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 killed a god, so they they walk away safe. Uh, Vicky and Bert Im- imply that they're going to adopt uh, Sarah and Job, and then one of the other kids, I believe her name is Helen, uh, is hiding in their car and tries to kill. Bert, and then Vicky knocks her out, and then the movie's over. Like that's that's roll credits. Literally worse ending than Cujo. Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah, it's not good. It's, I would say like I know that I make this joke a lot, but I would say that it's uh the first time an ending has been at least thematically very close to a Stephen King movie or to a Stephen King book because you get all of this build up just for like the final conflict to be over in about three paragraphs yeah i mean it's 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 true yeah and which i i feel like i have a comment on that on that criticism but what did i want to say there was something else maybe that was it Oh, I think it was just that right the 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 special effects, but then it was uh, when Isaac's up on the giant corn cross thing or whatever, yeah. and then they he just starts to get like color red basically. <laughs> it's like I was like, okay, this was never a good special effect like ever. I'm like this. I mean, you know, the eight the 19th century they were doing better special effects. Trip to the yeah. moon. I mean, like Jesus, come on, like this. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that silent film where they shoot a bullet into the moon's eye is better special effects than in this movie. <laughs> I mean, like this is this is I, I I'll say it. That's the worst special effect I've ever seen. Yeah, I I would say that that I may agree. Uh, like there were movies at the time that balanced like using animation for uh, special effects way better than the mushroom cloud scene at the end of this movie did. If it's not the worst, it's among the worst that I've seen. That's for sure. I'm like, I'm going to leave a possibility. There's something I'm not remembering, but I don't know. I don't know. Roger Corbin made movies for a long time, so there's definitely probably something worse. But this tops the list right now. There's those scenes where it's like it's a doll or it's something and you're like, wow, this isn't real. But this is like nothing. I mean, it's just like color. (laughs) It's just like, what the hell? I don't know. It's like they just colored on the film print. Like, that's like it's what it looks like they did. Uh, I don't even know. It's just so even the ones where, you know, it's not real. You can totally tell it's like it's still it's still better. I feel like it's just, at least they're trying to make it look like something. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that was pretty much I know the last couple times we've been saying it was going to be shorter and it was not. 
But I feel like... What, what, what are we at here? We're at like uh, 45. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I, don't... I feel like this one's going to be one of the shorter ones. I've got a couple of things to talk about pop culture, but nothing too big. One of the things I'll get excited about, because of course I get to talk about South Park again. I mean, uh, culturally, whether you like the show or not, uh, they have handled parodying or even supporting pop culture probably better than anything else has fuck all you simpsons lovers out there south park did a lot of it better um but uh on this one specifically like the obvious one is kind of just like cujo uh as it became uh very much children of the corn synonymous for any time that you see creepy kids uh I remember a family moved in across the street from us when we were growing up, and they all looked very, very similar and had very, very, like, stark white features and white hair, and my mom referred to them as the children of the corn. Yeah, so, and and it's, like, it's in a lot of pop culture things like that, uh, uh, where, you know, creepy kids, oh, God, it's the children of the corn. Uh, South Park, uh, in the, the season four episode, Wacky Molestation Adventure... The kids are getting tired of all the rules their parents are making up for them. So Cartman suggests, uh, and he's the first one to do it too, I believe. He suggests that all of the kids tell the police that their parents, uh, I believe, quote, molestered them. So they all do that because uh, once one person does it, they find out how great it is to not have parents. So fast forward actually quite a while because they do it in kind of a montage where all the kids send their parents off. And then all of a sudden you just see the scene of these two new characters in a car driving up to South Park and talking about how he needs to get to Denver because he's got the job interview of a lifetime. But then their car breaks down. So then, you know, they're right next to this shop, right? And it's so like it's a it's a mechanics place, right? But instead of adults there, there's uh, Butters who is playing the mechanic, and uh, it's either Craig or Clyde is out playing spaceman. Uh, but it does a very good job of connecting to it as they start to go through. They're trying to find a phone, and they're like, "Oh, the only phone you're going to find is in this place." Anyway, I don't need to tell the whole synopsis of the entire episode, even though I want to, but uh, like the attachments are, long story short, they go in, there's only kids there because all the parents are gone, they talk about this whole religious thing, which the, the, uh, the provider, they refer to it as the provider, and they're actively, actively refer to uh, the... Uh, to adults as Outlander, um, to the point where there's a scene where Cartman is screaming, Outlander, just like Malachi did, and it's pretty hilarious. But then you get you get to the end and you find out that they've been uh, sacrificing kids uh, to the provider, which is a statue of John Elway, because that'll because once they sacrifice a kid, you know, then they get to live in prosperity for longer. And so it it, it ends at the end with basically all of the zealotry and everything that they were doing just kind of goes away and gets slept underneath their rug because their parents get released from uh, mandatory rehab for molesting their kids and uh, everything goes back to normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, other than that, that that's pretty much that's pretty much the pop culture. Uh, I know I, I didn't write these ones down. I know that there's a handful of songs that have been written about it, uh, which especially in like black metal and death metal, which is pretty easy considering a kid's uber religious cult would be prime fodder for writing songs in those genres. But yeah, that's that's the pop culture. Way to go, South Park, on nailing Children of the Corn. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, like you said, it's. It's just like Cujo in the sense that it's it's a big reference point, um, but I guarantee many of these people referencing it have never actually seen the film, and so it's like it's the same kind of deal where it's not like The Shining where lots of people have actually seen The Shining. It's just it's this big reference point of like yeah, it's like Children in the Corn, and I realized I'm like I guess I've never seen this movie, and I just kind of thought ah oh, at some point I'll get around to it, and I definitely would not have finished the film if I didn't. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, like, like I'll be honest, like this would have been something I would have turned on for, like, uh, like because it was on TV, uh, and then would have just very early changed the fucking channel. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. By the time they get to the town, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, I probably wouldn't turn it off. That's right. No, actually, it probably wouldn't. Um, but yeah, so. There's Children in the Corn. Um, it's okay. One thing I don't know is the mechanic. Is he trying to send them there? Like, you know, like 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing, or because he tells them to go to Hemingford, but obviously then the sign for Hemingford has been like rigged to go to Gat. So I'm like, is he trying to get them to Gatlin, or is he actually trying them, or does he not know that and he's trying to get them out of? I didn't get the feeling. I didn't get the feeling that he was purposefully trying to get him there, especially because you know, uh, as we find out later in the movie, Malachi murders him like right after that. Like I think he was trying to get them to safety, uh, but the kids have made it, so anyone who gets there can't get to safety. Uh, it's not really explained why they would do that, but like maybe they need more adults to sacrifice. Although that's not really implied either. You kind of maybe wonder if maybe Malachi did that because he wants to sacrifice more people, which is made obvious. Um, right, there is, yeah, there is that. I don't, yeah, yeah I, I, I wasn't sure if he knew it had been, I don't know. It, yeah, but why would you want adults there? Because then potentially they're going, because they, they mentioned like the blue man or whatever, the other skeleton. The that they, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The blue, man the, the blue man or whatever. Yeah. And, and that he was going to, he had figured it out and he was going to burn it down or whatever. Yeah. It takes a rocket scientist to figure. Maybe just burn it. I don't know. But anyway, it's like you, you, you can't walk behind the corn. There is no corn, you bitch. I mean, hey, uh, okay, yeah. So, I, but yeah, if, but I, I just wasn't sure uh, if if that was like because yeah, what is it? it well, because that's in a couple different films. But you have like the Texas Chainsaw thing where it's sort of Texas like, Chainsaw yeah, Master, that's so, that's the right, same yeah, yeah. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was kind of like that or, well, yeah. And then I don't know. That's pretty much it. I don't know. You, uh, I don't really have anything. I think that puts a pin in that. Like, I don't have anything else on it. Uh, I think we're getting into, I think children of the corn got us into, the start of a couple movies I'm, like, less excited about, and maybe because, like, after those movies, it culminates in some of the movies I'm the most excited about. So, like, we have a really rough run here, which started with The Children of the Corn. The next episode is Firestarter, which uh, I haven't watched since I was probably eight, and I don't remember really liking it then. Uh, which is then followed by Cat's Eye, and I think really the only reason I'm not super excited about these, as soon as we're done with Cat's Eye, we get Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive, and Stand By Me. So, rough three to get through, just to get to some really good ones. Yeah, um, so, Firestarter is next. Firestarter's next, and then I think it's gonna be Cat's Eye. Yep, Firestarter, Cat's Eye. And then Silver Bullet, and then yeah. I think we finally arrive at Stand By Me, right? No, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah, Maximum Overdrive is the month, but it's yeah, like two we're weeks. Last, yeah, we're on our last five. Ep- we're, we're heading into the home stretch with the last five episodes yeah, of the season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I was thinking Maximum Overdrive was like later, like 80, at least 87 or 88 or something. But I it's 86, and it's listed before, so it must have just came out earlier that year. It says, okay, it says July... No, let's see. Where is it at? Maximum order. Yeah, it says July 25th, and then Stand By Me says August 8th, at least according okay. to StephenKing.com, which you think would be correct. Um, but yeah, anyway. So... There we are, Firestarter. Definitely not looking forward to that one either. Uh, and this one, I was not anticipating. I wasn't. I wasn't like, oh god, Children of the Corn. I was like, oh, okay, I'll get around to it. But I mean, Firestarter, I feel like has to be better than this. Uh, we'll see. Uh, like, like I said, I don't remember liking it when I was a kid, but I feel like it was only because I thought it was slow. Maybe that'll change now. But I also feel like I liked Cat's Eye less. So I'm a little in a rough patch here with these two movies. Cause I, it, but again, I watched them when I was a kid, so who knows? But, but we got the Drew Barrymore's coming up. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah there we are. Um <laughs> There's just nothing. <laughs> there's, yeah. not even, there's not even like a, a riff or like a rant to go. I mean, like it's just I, I, there's literally uh, this movie provided none of that. Uh... Yeah. So there we go. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back with Firestarter. All right. Ta-ta.